the financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast with Paul Fagan and Paul Becker. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hello everyone, this is Paul Becker. So for today's podcast, Paul Fagan is working and uh, we're going to have a great guest today. His name is Sean Campbell. So we're going to be talking to him about B2B Insights and how his firm can help you grow your business. He's been a a professional service phone firm owner, sorry about that, for 20 plus years. Sean has been a contributing assistant professor teaching competitive intelligence and industry analysis. Sean is also the CEO and founder of Cascade Insights. So with that, let's just jump right in here. And and Sean, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, And just to be clear, I didn't catch that when we were talking in the beginning, but I'm co-founder. I don't want to leave my business partner out uh, of Cascade Insights, but we've both both worked together for almost 22 years across um, two different businesses. So we've got a long history together in that regard. So, but just to be fair to him, but yeah, yeah. Equal, equal partnership all the way through, but yeah, happy to be on. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful. Wonderful. So with, with that, you know, you have a business partner for 20 years there. That's great. That's a tremendous accomplishment in itself to work with the same person that long sometimes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, your journey and how you got to where you are? Uh, well, so I thought I was going to be a college professor. That was basically the goal. Oh, and uh, I, I maybe in some ways I, I'd still like to do that. Now it may be more when I retire, or you know, businesses do get sold, so maybe maybe that'll happen. That happened to our first business. I mean, there's there's for anyone listening, there's no plans for that right now, but like that's not the point. Uh, but you never know when things can happen. Uh, but at some point, whenever I leave, you know, the co-chair of Cascade. I, that's one thing I think I'd like to go back to. But anyway, I was I was off on that track, and that was where I was headed. And I met a girl, and uh, I didn't I didn't want to starve as I was going through my PhD program. <laughs> and uh, we decided to not go that direction. Although, in full credit to her, she tells me all the time, you know, she would have followed me to Waterloo, which is Waterloo, Iowa, where the PhD program would have been. So she always jokes like, I would have followed you to Waterloo, you know, and uh, but uh-huh. I went off. I went off and uh, did technical training. So I was still teaching, but I was doing it teaching people uh, Windows and programming and databases and stuff like that. And anyway, that job, or a few jobs along the way there, led to an opportunity becoming an independent trainer. So, and I started a company along with two other guys. One of which is still my current business partner, and we grew that company and eventually sold it. Uh, that was Three Leaf Solutions that ran from 1999 to about 2006. And then Cascade was formed shortly after that. And the connection between the two companies is, while we started out as technical trainers, we also had a starting relationship with Microsoft. As I say, back when Microsoft used to be mm. cool, uh, Microsoft's never been cool, but they were cooler and back then. And so that was a huge learning experience because you know whose first account to sell to is the equivalent of general motors in the 50s or ford in the you know what i mean 50s i mean like 
it wasn't the small first baby step we took, you know. Now on the flip side, there was lots of large benefits to having a large account. You know, there's there's two sides of that coin. There's also some frightening aspects of having an account that large as one of your main accounts. But anyway, so that that led us to do a lot of interesting things with Microsoft and Intel over the years. Those were our two main accounts in the first company, and then we had a smattering of other ones. And uh, we ended up toward the end of that company doing a lot of research on new technology trends and new initiatives and what they meant for the market as we kind of went from training toward research, which, which if you think about the backdrop of wanting to be a college professor, all of this is somewhat ironic, right? Um, what, are, what are profs do? They teach and they do research. And so we founded Cascade Insights and Cascade Insights started out as a firm that only did competitive research. Uh, and then we grew that arm of the company to do all types of market research, all focused on B2B tech though. So just the B2B technology sector. And that's where we've been ever since. And the company's grown to, you know, high twenties in terms of employee count. And we're used to say we were based in Portland, but like everybody else, we ended up shutting our offices and letting people fly to the four corners of the earth. And they, they did so very willingly. Uh, and cause there's all kinds of cool places to live if you can work remotely. And we still have a decent cadre of people that were here in Portland that myself and my business partner being two of the people. And that's, that's kind of where I stand today. So, and inside Cascade, I guess to wrap that up, my business partner leads the research team and I kind of sort of taken nothing away from my business partner because it's, it's a larger, large team that he leads, but I kind of lead everything else. So I lead sales and marketing and, um, oversee finance and HR and legal and all the other stuff that, that goes into kind of making a business run, you know, 24 seven from that regard. Oh, very, very neat there. So yeah, running everything else isn't small in itself, right? Especially when you talk <laughs> about the legal consequences of things and things like that, right? It, yeah. it can be daunting in itself. So yeah, with yeah. that, um, go ahead. No, I was gonna say you're right. I mean, I mean, it's you know, my my problem is I have, he has one very large team. My problem is I have two moderately sized teams, and then it feels like three other small teams, and you know, it's it's that kind of coordination that's that's more challenging than anything else. Um, so, but 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 I but I like it though. I mean, I like having a lot of different teams, and I I particularly really like getting marketing and sales to work really well together because they, they both report to me. So I have a lot of ability to, you know, angle them in toward each other and make sure their objectives line up with actually creating clients. Cause, cause as is well told story, like too often marketing can go off in its own direction and sales can go off in its own direction. And, you know, before you know it, they're not really mutually supportive. Um, just the other day I referred to them as schmarketing. Uh, you know, so like, you know, with an SCH, but like, but it, that, that was just for fun. The, the actual name I go with them, that's a little bit more alliterative is I call them client creation. So we have like regular meetings where they get together with the whole focus that like, at the end of the day, we're here to create clients. That's what both teams do. But anyway, yeah. So lots to, lots to keep me going day to day. Well, I, I really do like that, um, that term client creation. So, um, that, that's kind of a neat way to think about it. I like that. I might steal that one. Yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, steal and of course, it's not all, you know, the, the people who are more analytical listening might be like, well, it's not just creation. It's also expansion. And it's also, yeah, okay, we get that. But like, <laughs> at, at the end of the day, 
creating a client is harder than expanding with an existing one. So let's just leave it at the hard job, which is creating a new client, right? And that's kind of where we left it. Um, True. So let, uh, let's get a little bit into the research you're doing. It, it's heavy database, right? My understanding. And you know, how hard is it to get this data? And how do you take this hodgepodge of everything and start to create those insights? I know you do lots of different slices and dices and, and verticals to to give that insight to people. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it it's a lot of data, but on the, I mean, maybe to me, it seems really simple because we've been doing it for a long time, but it, but it, it's in some ways it is kind of straightforward. I mean, broadly speaking, market research has two large camps. There's qualitative research and quantitative research. And on the qualitative side, you have things like in-depth interviews and focus groups. And on the quantitative side, you have things like web surveys and you have maybe data from internal systems or things like that, that you, you know, maybe you have web traffic data or, you know, marketing automation data that you want to flow in. But, but fundamentally, those are the two buckets of data that you have. And, um, you know, there's definitely a lot to the analysis side, but, but frankly, one of the biggest things that matters the most is, are you talking to the right people? I mean, one of the things we say around here a lot is right people, right questions. And what that means is that if we, gather the right participants into a research study, whether that's a quantitative web survey or in-depth interviews or focus groups, that is really a large percentage of what's gonna drive the success of the research study. Um, you can design a great survey instrument, you can ask great questions, you can you know, uh, even do great analysis, but if the people you're asking aren't the right people, um, everything's wrong. And if somebody's listening, go, well, how could that be? You know. It's interesting because clients, even themselves, will will struggle sometimes to articulate who they need to go after. Um, you know, the classic case that I th that runs a hap happens a lot for us is that somebody will say, "Well, I want to go interview senior executives or something like that about a solution." And the truth is, most senior executives don't make purchase decisions. They sign checks, you know, virtual or otherwise, but they're not the ones who actually like research a product, go out to the web go think about whether it's the right product, make the case for it. You know, CIOs don't go run around all day making case for, for solutions, right? No. And so and so our what will happen is our client will say, well, I really want to survey the target CIOs or CEOs or CMOs, you know, whatever C-level title. And we'll say, I don't know if that's the best use of your dollars because if your goal is to understand the effectiveness of your marketing, the C-levels probably don't even look at it, right? You know, I mean, that's not to say there aren't times to do surveys on that audience. But, you know, one, it's expensive to do that. The more senior the person, the more expensive the research study, generally speaking. And secondarily, you know, why would you want to do research on people who aren't materially addressing the problem you want to ask questions about? So there's there's a lot of coaching clients on who the right people should be. And once we get that nailed down, then then the rest of it's a little bit downhill from there. That's great advice even for day to day work and things like that. You know, when, when you're looking at a problem work you know trying to solve it yourself and finding those tools and then you can present it up the chain as you need to so that's kind of neat yeah 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 insightful exactly. in itself you know <laughs> i, I kind of like that so um i, I guess I, I have a question you're know, hearing some of what you've said so far I, I do have an interesting one maybe and sort of what's one of the best data aha or insights that that, that you've seen you know having done this for so long 
you know, a lot of them are are kind of tied to specific clients, I guess. You know, I mean, and and they're their business problems for sure. Um, you know, if I, if I narrow cast it on us, you know, just for a minute, one of the things that we figured out was that large enterprise accounts are much more reluctant to fill out our lead forms. You know, they're more willing to call us, um, you know, so that was like one interesting data point we figured out a long time ago, and then it had to change how we, set up kind of inbound phone, you know, uh, pickup and how that was going to play out. And, you know, some of that I think is just enterprise accounts are maybe a little more reluctant to bear their soul in a lead form about all the challenges they have. So that was an interesting one, you know. Um, but over the years, there's been lots of things that we've told clients. I mean, one of my, one of the more interesting ones that I can think of is that there was a Fortune 100 tech company we were working with and they they had sent a bunch of Silicon Valley young guns off to the UK to go sell and they were having lots of trouble selling in the UK and our research came back and told them that people hated their sales team like despised them and uh, mostly because they just weren't mm -hmm. a cultural fit uh, they weren't they weren't you know really under kind of the right framework when it came to kind of the way Brits like to be sold and so we ended up actually getting the VP of sales fired for the UK for this like fortune 100 company. We didn't, we didn't go into wow. the goal of that. Um, and you know, one of the things that, uh, happened with our research is it actually ended up going all the way to the CEO of this fortune 100 company, which we, we weren't in the room when it was presented, like our, our contact eventually carried it that final step. But she told me that what she put on the slide was, you know, <laughs> this wasn't our wording, but it was her. She goes, so we're assholes. That was what she wrote on the slide. And basically said that's <laughs> that's and, and that's what got the CEO's attention, right? She summed up all the research into that's our problem. And and honestly, if you were if you saw the quotes from the study, uh, well, while the Brits were perhaps a little more polite than that, um, that is precisely what they were saying: is that everybody that had come over to the UK was just not a pleasant person to deal with. And um, you know, and that, and you find stuff like that all the time in research. You know, I mean. Um, Companies companies can be a little bit blind to their own problems, and and that's what research does, you know, in a really good way. It, it shines a light on those kinds of problems. Wow, well, that's great. That's really neat. And yeah, the cultural norms and things of different areas are hugely different. And if you don't know that, yeah, I could see that happening pretty easily, right? That's yeah, yeah. Well, that's, and, a, and that's that, a neat story there. Yeah, yeah. It happens. It happens a fair amount. I, I think you know. And, um, and, you know, and there's plenty of stories over the years about people that build products to nowhere and, you know, all kinds of things. And, you know, that, that we found maybe weren't as successful as they hoped they would be, or, you know, sales tactics or marketing strategies that weren't that effective. I mean, some of it's hard to talk about because like, it, you know, it, it's a little proprietary to the account, you know, in terms of what, what we told them, but there's definitely been a lot of meaningful change that we've seen over the years from the research we've done. I want to switch it up a little bit. Uh, you brought up COVID before, you know, and everyone going uh -huh. home. And another part of that would be what everyone started calling the great resignation. So some people went to the four corners of the globe and happily working wherever. But the other, the other part of that was this great resignation. And how has that sort of changed really the data insights and what's happening and 
some of the norms that we were just talking about. Well, I would say that it's interesting. Yeah, the Great Resignation for sure has changed a lot of things. Um, but we we've gone from the Great Resignation to the Great, you know, readjustment now. You know, like you know, for the 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 Great Resignation brought a lot of pressure on a lot of companies to make sure that hey, you know, wages were high and that salaries were high and benefits were strong and you know you had great employee retention programs. And I'm I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. But at, at the moment we record this, you know, this isn't a political comment. It's a statistical fact. You know, gas is twice what it was a couple years ago. You know what I mean? There's there's things that are just dramatic. You know, there's inflation. Mm -hmm. There's all this stuff. And I I I think we're just going to have this great readjustment and it's going to affect everything. You know, even the work from home stuff. It's fascinating to watch because. There's almost a generational gap. It's not always a generational gap, but it almost is. You know, you see these, you know, 50, 60 year old, you know, CEOs saying, you know, dang you, you better go back to the office, you know, and the employee base is looking at it and going, that's great. You paid for that office, but I don't, I, I don't need to go there, <laughs> right? The fact that you paid for it and you have a lease doesn't mean I need to go there. And um, so, you know, I think it's it's fascinating to see these organizations try to make their employees go back. I mean, I, I can't say what company it is, uh, but there's a recognizable tech company that somebody told me that um, over the last several months after work, you know, back on campus had been, you know, reestablished, um, something like only 20% of the employee base had even shown up in the building once. Right. And you've just got these like massive changes that I, I don't know how it's going to play out. I mean, I've owned a business for a long time, but you know, uh, all the economic stuff, all the, you know, changes in how we work, you know, the changes on some of the technology infrastructure that we use, um, you know, there's there's just a million things in play. I mean, it's going to it's going to be an interesting next couple of years, you know, and this is coming on the heels of a couple of years that wasn't necessarily normal. Right. You know, so, yeah. I, you know, I think we were all hoping for a little bit of a break, uh, but I, I don't really think we're going to get one. And that's OK. You know, people are people are resilient. You know, I mean, but we whatever we're dealing with now, you know. It, well, it's funny. I was going to say it isn't a worldwide global conflict. Well, you never can tell either on that one. You know, I mean, look, there's enough going on now in certain, you know, conflicts in the Ukraine that you never know. But, you know, there, there are there are worse seasons in the life of humanity. Right. You know, and so I um taking nothing away from the pain and suffering people are going through. So I, I, I think there's this constant battle to maintain perspective and at the same time recognize that it it very likely will be a challenging season up ahead if you if you own a business or you're you're just even in one you know which in a way we all are yeah very good one second that'll be an edit there need to cough sorry about that all right, that, that's really neat. Thank you. So I wanted to kind of bring us back a little bit to, you know, Cascade and the data insights and things like that. I, I know you were talking about how when you started, you were working with some of the largest companies in the world, but you also do work with startups and things like that. 
or so maybe I have a startup or side gig that I'm trying to make it my full time sort of sort of job. How how does that work with with Cascade and how can you help someone in that in that type of situation? Well, to be fair, you know, the the research we do isn't necessarily tied to like a small company like that. I mean, the place where I can probably comment best there is just from the perspective of just being a business owner um, and and kind of, um, you know, the experience I've had going through. You know, we don't do a lot of research on like the small or medium size of the market. Uh, I mean, well, the, the ultra small, I should say you know, like, like a startup who's okay. just, you know, one or two people. Um, so I'm happy to talk a little bit about just things that I think you really need to think about if you're going to start a business. But, uh, but no, I mean, we haven't done a lot of research in the space per se. So it's all personal experience. Yeah. So well, let's, let's go into that a little bit then, if you don't mind. You yeah, know, no, that's fine. No, no, that's fine. I mean, I, I would say that <laughs> There, there's so many things that leap to mind whenever anybody like comes to me and says, you know, hey, I'd like to start a business, right? Uh, first off, I don't want to dissuade anybody from starting a business. I mean, gosh, having a business can be really hard sometimes. I, I mean, no lie. It can be brutally hard. And anybody who tells you it isn't either hasn't owned a business for long enough or hasn't really looked at their business as much as they probably should. <laughs> um, and, and so I think there's just a lot of things, you know, the first thing when somebody starts out is I say, are, are you, are you okay knowing you run out of money at some point? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, at some point you'll run out of money. And they're like, well, no, I won't. I'm going to go find work. And I'm like, okay, great. But there's a really big difference between working for a place where the paycheck just arrives. And to some degree, you delude yourself into the fact that it will always arrive, even though we know that technically it doesn't always arrive like sometimes you get laid off but there's kind of a feeling of like permanence with that that the minute you break out on your own you start doing things like dividing your bank account by your burn rate you know and you go oh my god i only have six months of cash or seven months of cash or 12 months of cash or two months of cash so there's a there's a constant sense that you know even while the business is running well like you know there's a point at which you might not be around. And that becomes a lot more visible to you as a business owner. The The second thing I find is that, so you have to kind of like, are you okay with that? You know, cause you're going to break that veil of um, security. The minute you leave a job that's just sending you a paycheck every couple of weeks. And again, I don't think you were any more secure necessarily in the job. It's just, it felt like you were more secure, you know, cause your position can be eliminated, you know, and you just get an email and you show up in some guy's office at 9am. Um, or in this day and age, you all get fired on a zoom call, right? You know, I guess that's the way things go now. So, you know, and then the, and then the second thing is, um, you know, really be clear about how your hours are going to be spent. You know, most business owners start off on a new business with math. That sounds something like this. All right. I'm going to work uh, more than I worked at my last job. Check. Uh, cause this is my job and not their job. Great. Okay. So I'm going to put in 50 hours. Okay, fine. You know, you're going to put in 50 hours or 60 hours a week. And then they multiply that and they give themselves a couple year, weeks of vacation a year. And they say, they multiply that by an hourly rate and they go, look at all the money I'm going to make. And then somebody, and they say, oh, well, wait, I forgot about taxes. So I'm going to go take that off. So they take off like 30%. <laughs> so a couple of things are automatically wrong with this. Uh, Self-employed, just to be clear, it's not 30%. 
uh, you know, self-employed, it's better to think of it as 50 and everything after that is gravy. Because uh, pretty much the tax bracket's pretty high the minute you're making any dollars at all as self-employed. Uh, it's not really 50%, but if you start there, you're less disappointed when it's 42. So, you know, so you start with that. And then, and then you have to ask yourself, okay, where am I going to do all the other things? Like talk to the tax guy and invoice clients and market my company and have a sales call that goes nowhere because sometimes they don't. They don't all turn into something. Uh, more of them should than not, but clearly it's not a, you know, no sales team has a batting average of 1,000. There, there just does not exist on planet Earth. And so, you know, you've got this time that you is defined as you not being billable. And right at that moment, when I coach people on that, I say, imagine if that time is 40 to 50% of your time. And they're usually stunned because they're like, that can't be that high. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Because if it's not, you're going to have the biggest like seesaw roller coaster in your business you've ever seen. Because you'll lurch from one project, then waiting for the next project while you're burning cash, and then you'll lurch to the next project. And you don't want that. You want a sustainable business where you can basically say, okay, I've got meaningful projects every week. I spend time marketing and selling the next project. Does that mean I can't do all the project work I want right now? Yep, but I've got a sustainable business. And then I say, so take 50% of those hours that you originally thought, multiply them by your hourly rate. Do you still want to leave your job? Because after you multiply it by the hourly rate, then you got to give 40% back to somebody else called federal and state. And and I, mm. I again, I'm huge on going on uh, on my own. But like, and I think, uh, frankly, I think, Owning a business teaches you so much about leadership and management and yourself and the market and the world and like a million things. I, I you know, a bit like we used to, they said, you know, everybody should join the Peace Corps. I think everybody should own a business for two years. I mean, I genuinely think that's true. I genuinely think that's true. Um, and so I, but most of the economic reasons that people think about launching a business as a solopreneur, they really don't pan out the way people think. And then that creates all this stress for them two years in, right? That if they thought about it more like, okay, how do I ramp this thing into something meaningful? Or how do I set my expectations correctly? And, and one of the thing too, like you can increase your billable rate over time. You can do more interesting things and more challenging work. I mean, there are plenty of solopreneurs that earn I don't know, but trust me way more than I do, you know, but that didn't start their first year. And I think there's just mm. a lot of coaching that has to happen about how long it's going to take you to scale a business, even as a solopreneur. And then there's a whole separate issue about whether you should stay a solopreneur and whether you should have other people in the business with you. Uh, I, I don't think all businesses need employees. Uh, I would say that having some employees is generally a good thing. Uh, the hedge there is it comes with its own set of challenges when you have employees, right? And so, like, um, it's not just gravy, but there's there's a lot to be said for for having a staff too. So anyway, I don't want to go too long on that, but those are just a couple things yeah. that like I I I find are easily missed by new people who want to go start a business, and uh, and if they get those two things right. So much of the rest of the foundation snaps into place because now they're spending time on marketing, they're spending time on sales, they're spending time on internal systems. They're not just lurching from one block of project work to the next. Um, there's there's balance there, and that's a really good thing.
that's really great. I really kind of liked everything you you said there a lot. There's a lot to absorb. Uh, it made me think of one thing. Uh, kind of a very polarizing individual a lot of times, but something uh, Elon Musk had tweeted recently. You know, we have, we have baby showers for everyone. We should have a business shower too when people start a business. They give them that <laughs> foot up and foundation and help. Uh, that was a neat idea, personally, uh, regardless of other things. But I, I just yeah, thought that yeah, was yeah. kind of a neat thing. Yeah, yeah, that's no, a super good so, idea. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. I, I just love the idea of everyone's coming. Baby shower, right? Great. But helping everyone to start and launch that because there is so much help that's needed. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's I wanna, a massive amount of help. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, no, it's good. So I, I just wanted to get back to the cascade and, and the B2B type work and, you know, how how that plays out, right? Because you, you don't do business to consumer. It's strictly business to business. And maybe not everyone is always great in understanding how that plays out and how it works. And it's a, it's, it's a huge area, right? That There's a lot that happens in this space. So you want to give us a little walk through on some of the, some more of that um yeah 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 uh so so basically the the first thing i tell people is that um you know when when they think of b2b versus b2c it, it's all the technology you never see uh one of the things mm -hmm. i used to ask in interview loops around here when we were smaller when i was kind of doing a lot of the day-to-day co-hiring along with Scott on the research side is I'd say, tell me about a technology that's not found in the Best Buy. And it was fascinating because so many people would be like, uh, what do you mean? I can't think of one. <laughs> like, <laughs> like uh, everything's in a Best Buy, right? I mean, like there's dishwashers and washing machines and TVs and Xboxes and, you know, um, all of that stuff, you know, what, why, um, um, you know, why, why would I uh, have an issue, you know, finding anything in a Best Buy? And and there's so much other technology that's sold. You know, there's logistics software that like runs trucking outfits. There's um, software that, you know, drives ships, you know, um, hopefully not the one that drove the Ever Given. You know what I mean? Uh, there's, <laughs> yeah, the you know, thing, the Suez. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, uh, you know, huge companies that have devoted their whole lives to selling B2B software. You know, Microsoft has a huge arm of their company that sells B2B software, you know, customer relationship management software, marketing automation software, financial software, you know, all kinds of things. And, um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of that that goes on. And a lot of that is, is invisible though. And, um, you know, that basically, um, you know, drives a lot of, a lot of business engagement uh, around the world, you know? And so that's the stuff that we focus on. Yeah, that's great. I'm just thinking, you know, my firm or any firm really, right? You're trying to get to those customers or schmarketing, as you called it, right? Combining those two worlds and getting that data, doing that research to understand who your maybe even your true target audience is. So Well and, it's, and it's, yeah, yeah. And yeah, and that's and that's where we help. I mean, a lot of times, you know, um, one of the things that's true about B2B versus B2C is B2C purchase cycles are much more uh, simple to understand. Now, if somebody does B2C market research, they'll talk about like, you know, buyer emotions and, 
you know, how they feel about products and, and all of those things. And I'm not discounting any of that, you know, and there's a lot that goes into the brand, you know, do you make the rose gold iPhone this year or do you hold off and make a purple one? You know, I mean, there's all that kind of stuff. And that's, that's huge. That's super important stuff to dig into if you're trying to like dominate a market like that. But on B2B, it's just orders of magnitude more complex and it takes a lot more time and it takes a lot more um, work you know, to kind of understand a really complex uh, business deal. You know, like you picture buying a plane. There's no one person that buys a plane from Boeing. There's not one guy that just strolls down to Seattle, you know, over to Seattle and says, can I have one of these? Add to cart. You know, there's like a trillion people involved in that deal. And it lasts years. And once they sign a deal, um, you know, for... Um, um, you know, uh, for one of those planes, they might be with them for 10 years or more, you know? So there, there's a lot of complexity to kind of how that relationship establishes. And there's a lot of work to be done to, to analyze that. Yeah. It's funny you bring it up the buying a plane. Uh, I've been a fireman volunteer fireman for a long time and I've been gone through two truck purchases and specking out every single little detail. Yeah. I, I can see what you mean by, that relationship there. It took a long time, almost death by committee at times, right? <laughs> but well, right, uh, right. every yeah, label yeah. has to be specified on what color and, and everything, right? everything. Yeah. Right, That's right, a... exactly. And there's, and there's a, there's a lot to that. And, um, and I, this might be an interesting way to wrap up a interview, but um, although it's maybe not the first time ever mm -hmm. that it's happened in podcast land, um, I'm down to 2% and I can't find my power brick. That's a true fact. So, um, and I even messaged somebody and I said, hey, can you bring this down to my office? And they can't find it. So um, you and I should probably go for the close before the whole video yep. just shuts down. So, uh, so, not, to, so not to rush it, but I wanted to give you that warning before we run out. No, that's great. So I'm going to skip my recap. And Sean, you know, uh, how can people get in touch with you to leverage your tools, your, your business to help them grow, even with a, a larger organization or something, you know, medium size that they're working in. What's the best way? Um, just re find, look for CascadeInsights.com. And if you want to reach out to me, you can go to Sean, S-E-A-N at CascadeInsights.com. And uh, just for those listening, this is the first time in doing lots of interviews that I have neglected to bring my power brick. But so like, I guess there's a first time for everything. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen again anytime soon. But thanks for thanks for having me on. Thank you very much, Sean. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I love your client creation comment there. That was wonderful. And to all of our listeners, thank you very much for listening. Please log on to YouTube, like us there, subscribe there, please. That would be great. This is Paul Becker reminding you, managing your finances can be stressful. That's why the financial dads are here to help you plan for success. Be well, be kind, and pay it forward. Thank you.